All right. Good evening, everybody. It is good to be uh, together tonight. And thank you so much for being here for our pastor's Bible study. Pastor Josh is out of town. And so tonight we have a very, very special uh, guest speaker, Drew Hines, uh, who is a retired pastor, but a member here at Taylor's, is going to share with you tonight in the Bible study. Drew's been an encouragement for me, or to me, for many, many years. Um, I first met Drew when I was serving at Blue Ridge Baptist as right out of seminary, not knowing a lot, and Blue and um, it was a time of encouragement that with Drew and just knowing the the history, the people, the the community, uh, and then always serving together through the Three Rivers Baptist Association. Uh, Drew's been an encouragement. I want to share just a little bit about Drew. He's pastored for over 40 years. He um, spent over 20 years at Washington Baptist, which is up in Greer, and um, served faithfully there until his retirement. And in his retirement, he has um, done several different things, including already served in a transitional pastor role, which is like interim pastor for churches that are uh, in the process of, of looking for a new pastor. He also uh, enjoys gardening and writing, and he has completed uh, three books, and his newest book titled um, The Hidden History of the Dark Corner will be coming out in March, but he's got a couple of other books as well. And he also writes a column uh, for the Tryon Daily Bu Bulletin. So um, Drew is very busy in his retirement, and we are grateful that he is here with us tonight. His wife, uh, Suzanne, and, and he have a, two children and five grandchildren, and we are so grateful that he's going to spend time with us opening God's Word and just sharing with us. So Drew, brother, you come on, and we are so grateful for the opportunity to hear from you tonight. So come on. <laughs> well, hey, y'all. How you doing? Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you for your kind introduction, Chris. You're not leaving, are you? That's always a bad sign. When the person who introduces you leaves immediately, that's a bad sign. But uh, I am very glad to be here tonight. I'm going to tell you what Zsa, Zsa Gabor told her ninth husband, and that is, I won't keep you long. <laughs> um, some of these young people are saying, who's Zsa, Zsa Gabor? <laughs> well, go ask your grandpa, he'll remember. But I'm delighted to be here tonight, and um, I appreciate Josh's kind invitation to ask me to speak in his place, and I do count it a privilege to stand here uh, where he stands every Wednesday night and faithfully proclaims God's word. Uh, so uh, thank you for being here. If you weren't here, I wouldn't have anybody to talk to. And while I have been known to talk to myself, I don't really enjoy it that much. But I'm glad you're here. As Chris said, I'm a recovering, I mean a retired Baptist preacher. Uh, 44 years uh, I've served in the ministry and God is... Uh, uh, richly blessed me and he's been very tolerant and the people that I've served have been very tolerant. My last 20 years of ministry, as Chris mentioned, before I retired was Washington Baptist Church in Greer. Been retired two years. We came and joined uh, Taylor's First Baptist Church. Then we immediately left and uh, went to Spartanburg for a solid year. I served Eastside Baptist Church as interim pastor over there and enjoyed that experience as well. So we came back and uh, in November and uh, we're here and um, I'm 
open to the next chapter that God might open for me or uh, write for me in my in my ministry. But uh, tonight I'm here and I appreciate it. And again, I'm honored uh, to be here. Um, when I asked uh, Josh uh, about what he wanted me to preach about, he assured me at that time, that's two or three weeks ago, he assured me that I did not have to speak from Leviticus. And, and uh, of course, he wrapped it up last uh, Wednesday night. But I told him, I said, thank you. Thank you so very much. Because I love the book of Leviticus. It's God's word. I know it's inspired. But I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. When I'm studying personally the book of Leviticus, I get bogged down sometimes. I get a little distracted. And I know some of you spiritual superstars are sitting back there saying, I can't believe he'd say that. But I just did, so while you're judging me, you can pray for me, and I'm working on it. But I do uh, thank the Lord for the way that Josh has uh, so insightfully uh, opened up the book of Leviticus for us over these past several Wednesday nights, and I appreciate it. But I'm not going to be in Leviticus tonight. I, as I prayed about what I might speak about and as I thought about it, I thought about um, the month that we are in right now, the month of February. And... Um, Traditionally, uh, February doesn't really have that much going for it. You know, it's the shortest month of the year, and usually, although, uh, although it's not been the case this year, usually uh, February is the coldest month of the year. It's the dreariest month of the year. But right there, right smack in the middle of February, embedded in the month of February, is Valentine's Day. And Valentine's Day is a wonderful celebration of love. And we all love love, don't we? Um, even though I believe that love is probably the most misused, overused, and abused word in the English language. It really is. You, you think about the way that we throw the word love around flippantly and Part of that may have to do with the fact that we only have one word in the English language to describe that sentiment. The Greeks, on the other hand, of course, as you know, have three words to describe the different dimensions of love. We have one. So we use the same word to describe how we feel about our wives and about our husbands and our children. Use the very same word to describe how we feel about a ribeye steak or a vacation destination or a football team. So we do, we misuse that word love so many times. But there's no doubt about it, when you come to the word of God, love is the central theme of this book. Now Jesus is the central character of this book, but love is the theme throughout. When you think about it, love is at the very basis of creation. God created us because he loves us. And, and throughout that process of creation, we see the hand of God's love in every part of that. God's love is seen in his revelation. Every book, all 66 books of this Bible, God is saying, I love you. From Genesis to Revelation. And certainly in the very act of redemption itself, love is central in the act of redemption. God redeemed us 
because he loves us. So I want to talk about love tonight. Now, that's a tremendously broad theme. I know that. Can't cover it all. But I want to talk about it a little bit tonight. And I'll be honest with you. I am a sucker for a good love story. How about you? I love love stories. I never will forget it was um, Valentine's Day 1971. Now, I know that was before some of you discovered America. I realize that. But it was Valentine's Day 1971. I was a sophomore at Wade Hampton High School. And I was very much in love with a beautiful, dark-haired beauty named Suzanne. She was also a 16-year-old sophomore at Wade Hampton. And she's now my wife. We've been married for 48 years. And let me tell you, she's not here tonight. I'll tell you why. Before Josh's kind invitation for me to come speak, she had made plans to go and be with our three, three of our grandchildren in Georgia. She's down there tonight. And I told her before she left, I said, I know you're devastated <laughs> that you're not going to be able to be at church on Wednesday night, and I hope you get over it. And she said, I have. But back when we were 16 years old, she told me for Valentine's Day, I want to go to the movies. I want to go see Love Story. Some of you remember Love Story. Love Story was a blockbuster hit in 1971 that was based on a best-selling book by Eric Siegel of the same name. It starred Ryan O'Neill and Ally McGraw. And spoiler alert, it was a story about two young people who fell madly in love, got married, and it had a tragic ending. So she said, I want to go see Love Story. Well, my taste in movie stars ran more along the line of Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, Sean Connery, certainly not Ryan, pretty boy O'Neill. But I dutifully agreed, so we go to the Astro Theater out on 291. Some of you remember that. And we stood in a line about three and a half miles long to get a ticket. I was standing there just thinking to myself, I'd rather be on the surface of Mars than right here, right now. But we got our tickets and we went into the movie theater and sat down. The lights went down, the movie came on. And I'm here to tell you, my friends, that by the end of the movie, I was blubbering like an idiot. I hate to admit it, but I was. My eyes were red, my cheeks were wet with tears. And Suzanne looked over at me and she said, get a hold of yourself. <laughs> and so as I walked out of that theater, I know everybody thought I must have just come from my mother's funeral or something, but uh, I've always been a sucker for a good love story. I want to tell you another love story. I want to tell you a love story. This one's true. And it happened about 200 years ago. It happened up in the Tigerville section of northern Greenville County. It's a story of a man named Wilson Barton. And Wilson Barton was a prosperous farmer up in that area. And as a young man, he fell madly in love with a beautiful woman named Milda McKinney. They courted, got married, 
began their home and started a family. And they were very happy. Things were going well for Wilson and Milda. Wilson was actively involved in politics. He was a colonel in the old South Carolina state militia. And then fortunes began to turn. About 1830, Wilson was forced to take an unpopular political stand. It cost him his friends. He was ostracized by friends and neighbors alike, and he was forced to resign his commission as a colonel in the militia. He and Milda both were heartbroken. They began discussing the possibility of moving out of South Carolina. They had friends and family who had moved to Texas, and they sent back glowing reports from the Lone Star State about plenty of land, fertile land, good climate. So Wilson and Milda began to make their plans to move to Texas. In fact, Wilson began selling his land. But then tragedy struck. Milda became ill and died. Wilson buried his beloved wife in the cemetery of the Tiger Baptist Church up on what is now Highway 414 near North Greenville University. He erected a beautiful uh, brick crypt over her grave and put a marble slab lovingly inscribed. But as he began thinking about moving to Texas, the thought occurred to him that he would never be back to Milda's grave again. Never again would he be able to bring flowers to her because he would never return to South Carolina once he was in Texas. And so he came up with the thought of building a shelter over her grave. And so he built that shelter with sturdy black locust posts and he put a covered shingled roof on the top of the shelter and if you go by Tiger Baptist Church today, and you look right in the middle of the cemetery, of the Tiger Baptist Church Cemetery, right in the middle of the cemetery, you'll see, still standing, that shelter over the grave of Milda McKinney Barton. And it stands as a tribute to the love of her husband, Wilson. I've always been a sucker for a good love story. But I'm here to tell you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, that the single greatest love story ever written was written in only 25 words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God. Who can possibly comprehend the height, the breadth, and the depth of God's love? Just think about it. Those times when the devil's putting into your mind that false idea, that lie that you are unloved, as he occasionally does, and he very successfully does it sometimes, but when that thought comes into your mind and into your heart next time, you think about how much God loves you. When God created us, the Bible says we were created in the image of God. 
Now, I don't know that I understand everything about that concept of being created in the image of God, but I do know it's very special because it's said about no other creature that God created. The image of God. That's love. We were created in His image for a purpose. God put us in this world for a reason. And by the way, I say it tonight unashamedly. We are the crown of God's creation. We are the crown of God's creation. Now, in this society that we're living in today, there are so many who would tell us that that's an arrogant statement. And I want to tell you, it burns me up. It burns me up when people try to tell me that I am on equal footing with a giraffe or a dog or a cat or any other critter that God created. My Bible tells me that he created us a little lower than the angels in his image. We were created for two reasons, as I said. We were created in the image of God. One reason, I believe, for fellowship with God. That's love. God loves us so much he wants to have something to do with us. Have you ever been lonely? That's a silly question. I guess all of us have gone through that valley of loneliness at one time or another when we didn't think that anybody cared about us at all, that nobody wanted to be around us, nobody wanted to be near us, nobody wanted to have anything to do with us. But God wants fellowship with us. You will recall that when Adam and Eve were created, God came down and walked with them in the cool of the day. Have you read that? He came to be with them. That's love. God wants fellowship with you. Now there's one who wants to rupture that bond of fellowship between you and God and it's Satan. He's been doing it a long time. He did it in the Garden of Eden. As a matter of fact, he came down and, uh, of course, sin was introduced into the world and that was it as far as that fellowship with God is in terms of what Adam and Eve enjoyed in that perfect setting in the Garden. Satan does not want us to fellowship with God because he knows that means God loves us and we'll feel loved and valued and appreciated. And he still does it does it all the time. Next time you're alone and you're trying to pray to the Lord and talk with the Lord and have that intimate time with God, what's going to happen? Satan's going to come and try to distract you, right? He'll try to put you to sleep or he'll try to, he'll try to remind you of 10,000 things that you need to do because if there's one thing that he doesn't want, he doesn't want you fellowshipping with your Lord. But that's exactly what God wants with you. And when we miss out on that fellowship with God, we miss out on the greatest blessing of our lives. 
Well, it was a perfect environment in the garden. Adam and Eve were fellowshipping with their maker. Adam had a purpose to keep the garden. Then, of course, as you know, disaster struck. Sin came into the world. Sin came into the world. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, that could have been it. That could have been all she wrote right there. But we're talking about love. And you know what God chose? He chose redemption instead of condemnation. God is all about redemption. He gave us another chance. God raised up some people to teach us some very valuable and important lessons. He raised up Noah, for example, first of all, to teach us the value of obedience. Noah had to obey God perfectly. We can only really find true happiness and fulfillment when we obey God. And if Noah hadn't obeyed God perfectly, we wouldn't be here today. Then he raised up Abraham. He raised up Abraham to show us an example of trust and faith. Man, Abraham was a man of faith if there ever was one. You think about all the tests that Abraham went through successfully because God wanted us to learn to have faith in him. Have faith in God. Then God raised up Moses to teach us how to follow him. If you're on a pathway that's contrary to the way that God is leading you, you'll never find happiness or fulfillment. God loves you so much that he has mapped out a path and a course for you to follow. And it's only by following that course that you find true fulfillment, true happiness, and the love of God. God said, Moses, follow me. And so he gave him a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. God raised up David to teach us how to worship him. Because my friends, it is only in worship that we really and truly express our love to the Lord in a great way. Worship is more important than you can ever imagine. Are you going to worship this Sunday? I didn't ask you if you were going to be in church. Anybody can be in church. I remember a church that I pastored one time, the most faithful member was a dog. <laughs> that dog would come to church every Sunday morning like clockwork. Really? It was more faithful than some of our members. Her name was Sheba, and I'll never forget her. Well, you can come to church and not worship. A lot of people do it. But when you come and you worship and you set your mind to worshiping God and lifting up Jesus, man, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. So God gives us all these wonderful examples in His Word. He gives us His Word, His revelation. God raises up prophets one right after another to challenge us and to chide us and to encourage us. The prophets preach boldly. They preach courageously. Each one of them have a reason for preaching and teaching. 
revelation of God. And then we know that the curtain abruptly came down. Did you know there were 400 years of silence from the end of Malachi to the first of Matthew? 400 years. Um, we don't really, we can't really comprehend that because we, we open our Bibles and we go to the last verse of the last chapter of Malachi and then we turn the page to the first chapter, first verse of Matthew and we say, well, here we are. But it was 400 years. 400 years of silence. Someone put it in pretty good perspective. I read it the other day. They said that the time span from the time that the pilgrims touched Plymouth Rock in 1620 to today is 404 years. So that gives you a pretty good idea. Think about everything that's happened since the pilgrims came to America. Gives you a pretty good idea about that time period and that time span from the time that the last prophet of Israel proclaimed God's word to the opening of the New Testament. It's almost as if God was saying, hey, y'all let this sink in. You think about this. You think about what I've said. You think about what I've done. You think about how much I love you. Then the curtain comes back just as suddenly and abruptly as it closed. It opened on a lonely Judean hillside. You remember the story. The lowly shepherds were the first to hear the good news that God intended to complete his grand project of love. Man, those shepherds must have been surprised flock of angels overhead, flock of sheep on the ground. The angel of the Lord said, Behold, I bring you tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Those good old boy shepherds couldn't get there fast enough. They ran hurried to the stable, and there they saw the child of promise firsthand. What love. You see where I'm going with this? The scene again abruptly changes. We come to the wilderness along the Jordan River, and there's a preacher in camel hair, and he's preaching a scorching message of repentance. People by the score are wading out in the water to be baptized by this man, people called John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. And suddenly John looks up and he looks out on the horizon and he sees a familiar figure coming his way. And he stops what he's doing and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In one sentence, ladies and gentlemen, that prophetic preacher summed up the life and the ministry of God's Son. And from the day that John the Baptist baptized him, God endorsed him, 
Spirit of God came upon him like a dove from that day on for three and a half years. Jesus spent his brief life loving us, the unlovely, the undeserving. He lived sinlessly. He preached fearlessly. He healed purposely. He loved endlessly. That's right, always loving. And knowing all along that that love was not going to lead to earthly acclaim, but was going to lead to a Roman cross. And that's where I want to take up tonight. And briefly, I'd like for you, if you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 27, would you? Matthew 27. This is Matthew's account of the crucifixion of Christ. And I want you to understand as we look at God's word tonight that there was no other possible destination for the Lamb of God. Now the disciples were expecting him to be coronated. King. Emperor. Superman. They had seen his mighty acts of power. They believed that he was a man of destiny, and they were right there with him. And, and, and man, they were going to take part in all of this love and all of this, um, all of this acclaim that the Son of God was going to receive. But there was no other destination possible for the Lamb of God. The love of God compelled Jesus to die a substitutionary death for us. Now understand this. When the Lord was crucified, he went to the cross, the sinless Son of God. All right? He never sinned in word, thought, or deed in all of his 33 years of life on this earth. Hey, I would settle for two minutes myself. But not once did Jesus sin. He took our sins upon himself. He took the penalty of your sin and mine. And in the process, his righteousness, his holiness, his perfection was all applied to our account. So that when God looked upon Jesus on the cross, he saw us as sinners. And when he looked upon us, he saw Jesus' righteousness applied to our lives. His righteousness was transferred to us while our sin was transferred to him, the sinless, perfect Son of God. Oh, what a Savior! Amen? Wow. That leads me to ask this question. What exactly was it that kept Jesus on that cross? Was it the Roman edict that was, hanged, that was hung over, the, over his head on the cross? Was that what it was? Was that what kept Jesus on the cross? Was it the, the, the spikes that were driven into his hands and into his feet that kept Jesus on the cross? 
we all know that Jesus could have called a legion of angels from heaven to rescue him from that cross. He was not powerless. Nevertheless, I tell you that what kept Jesus on the cross was love. Love. Love overruled the most intense of all pain. We cannot imagine what it was like to hang on that cross. I want you to look, if you would, at verse 27 of Matthew 27. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and he put, they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. Now you probably know that those thorns didn't come from a little delicate dainty rose bush. I've seen them before, you probably have too, this particular shrub that they got these thorns from. The thorns were two, three inches long. And this crown was plaited and then not placed but shoved down upon the brow of our Lord and Savior. I can't even imagine. And then skip down to verse 30. They spit on him, took the reeds, struck him on the head, mocked him, stripped him of his robe, put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now look, verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. Now the one who was being crucified was forced to carry the cross beam of the cross to the place of crucifixion. Jesus had suffered such torture and such excruciating pain and he was weak and he fell beneath the load and Simon the Cyrene was commissioned to carry the cross the rest of the way. And uh, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. This was to be used as a sedative of sorts to take away some of the pain. But he refused to drink it, the Bible says. And they crucified him. They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now, let me stop there and describe the process of crucifixion. And you're well, well familiar with it. A person would be crucified, either tied or nailed as Jesus was, not through the hands, but through the wrist, to the cross, and also through the ankles or through the feet. And he would hang on the cross in this excruciating pain. Oftentimes the process would take hours or maybe even days. And of course he'd be, the one being crucified would be so weak that they'd have to go down on their legs. And, and the pain was so bad that they'd try to lift themselves up because they couldn't breathe unimaginable. That's where Jesus was for you. That's love. Secondly, love overruled a sense of shame and disgrace. Now, he was mocked on different occasions here. Verse 37 
over his head. They put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself if you're the Son of God come down from the cross. One humiliating act after another. Now imagine this, ladies and gentlemen. This is not a common criminal hanging on the cross. This is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is perfectly capable of calling fire down upon the heads of all of those who accused him and those who had crucified him. And yet he did not because it was love that kept him on the cross. There was even love that overruled a sense of abandonment. This was the worst of all the experiences that Christ had to go through. Verse 46, if you haven't read it lately, you need to read it with understanding and meaning. Jesus cried out in the Aramaic. He said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is interpreted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now there are many different interpretations of that. Why would Jesus say that? We don't have the time to develop that all together, but I, let me just say this. There was a feeling of utter abandonment in the heart and the mind of Jesus. His friends had forsaken him. His friends had left him. Those who one week prior to this were saying, Hallelujah. You know, welcoming him into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Now are the same ones who are making fun of him, mocking him, crying crucify him. Jesus even felt a sense of abandonment from God for that brief moment. Because as Jesus took the sins of all mankind upon himself, God could not look upon his precious son for that moment as that holy, sacred transaction was being made on the cross. Oh, what a saint. What a Savior. Do you know him? I trust you do. If you don't, you need to. He loves you so much. He wants to be your best friend. More than that, he wants to be your redeemer. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for making us holy when we could not do it for ourselves. We love you, Jesus. 
but we know we could never love you to the same degree that you love us. May we be ambassadors of your love for others. And as we enter into this holy season coming up, let us never forget that you paid it all for us. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you.